This morning's lesson is from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and and verse 13. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature adulthood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The Gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, according to your power, may we now live out the unity your Spirit has sealed for the Church in the one baptism of our one Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Christian baptism means so many different things that there's no way we can say everything about baptism in one shot. So for the last three years, at every baptism service, like here today, we looked at just one aspect of baptism. So here's a quick recap of what we've looked at so far in the last few years. So first thing, baptism means the death of our old life of sin. Secondly, baptism is a new kind of exodus, that is our escape from the land of sin, as it were, into the new promised land, that is the new creation. Third, baptism is our union with Jesus, that is our solidarity with Jesus, our being joined to his life and person. Fourth, baptism is adoption. 
That is, our becoming part of God's family purely because God chose us. And then fifthly, baptism is the reconstitution of the priesthood. It just means that Christians are the gardeners of the paradise on earth. Now, those five things, they still don't cover everything about baptism. And I'm not running out of things to say about baptism because here I am again with another thing to say about baptism. So we're looking at a sixth thing today. Sixth thing about baptism. And that is, baptism is the visible, tangible way of showing Christian unity. Baptism is the visible, tangible way of showing our Christian unity. Okay, so Christian unity, that's a touchy subject, right? Probably the first thing we can think of when we hear of Christian unity is, what unity? There are so many different churches, so many traditions, so many views. Yeah, Christians agree on a few important things. But Christians around the world, we don't, in fact, share communion together. We don't see the bread and wine the same way. We don't eat it together. We don't partake of it. We don't have the same councils together. And for centuries, we've tried to get all of us together, but we're still fighting the same fights, and we're looking for new ones to fight over. What Christian unity are we talking about here? See, for St. Paul... There is unity. There is unity among all Christians, whether we see that or not. I mean, let's look at our Ephesians reading. Paul says that there is one body and one spirit. There's one hope that belongs to our call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Paul is starting out here in this grand reality that because God himself is one, The church must therefore be one as well. In other words, you know how God himself is one, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, kept together as one. Would God ever break apart within himself? Never. God would never, ever break apart. Well, that's the same for God's church. That kind of unity is supernatural. It's unbreakable. And we just have to believe that. We just have to take that by faith. The same way that we believe and take it by faith, that this very old building that we're in is actually not going to collapse over our heads. It's being held together by these very powerful, invisible forces, keeping it from breaking apart. We take that by faith. That's the way you came in. The unity of this building comes from the genius of the way it's been built, And it doesn't depend on us holding the walls and the pillars, holding the ceiling up, maintaining its upkeep. No, we don't have to do that. The unity of this building comes from the way Henry Lane, the architect of this church, built it. The same way the unity of the church comes from the way that God built it. And it is unbreakable. It's going to last forever. Okay, but the church is clearly broken up, divided within herself into many different parts, warring factions divided against each other. And you know what? Paul acknowledges this reality. This is what he has to say about the matter. 
He says this, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain this unity. He's saying to Christians, preserve this unbreakable unity that you have in the Spirit. It's already yours. Keep it together, Christians. Now, it sounds like he's contradicting himself here. Paul, come on, didn't you just say our unity is from God himself? It's unbreakable, but you're telling us to keep it together like it depends on us. Which one is it, Paul? Surprise, surprise, it's both. It's both. Church unity is unbreakable and it is breakable. How is that even possible? The late Anglican priest, his name is John Stott, he illustrated it this way. He describes a, uh, a family that was first formed by marriage and then it grew in size with children, right? Babies. This family is united by blood, united by the loving relationship of the parents and the marriage of the parents by the family last name. But as we have seen so many times in life, even today, family can break apart. Infighting between siblings, irreconcilable differences, an affair, unforgiveness, there's greed, anything. Whatever destroys a marriage or a family, that happens. The parents end up separating, but they're not officially divorced. The older kids are now separated, they're estranged, they're living apart. Family is clearly broken up. Now in one sense, the family is indeed united by marriage, legally, by blood, by name. That unity has not been broken at all. But in a more true, invisible sense, the family is actually divided, estranged, unforgiving, bitter and angry at each other. The family is both united and divided at the same time. It's the same with Christians today. We are all, yes, around the world, united by the seal of the Spirit, by the blood of Jesus, baptized in the same name. This unity, it transcends all of time and space. It's unbreakable. It's supernatural. But at the same time, we are actually divided. We're estranged, unforgiving. We're not sharing communion together. This is why Paul says, be eager to maintain unity because he knew he will, we will all mess it up every time. And so the perpetual challenge to all Christians today is not so much making theological distinctions of, oh, this is the invisible unity of the church and this is the visible unity of the church. No, that's not the issue. The real issue is that our visible disunity, our obvious division, that flatly contradicts what's real. That is the unity of the Spirit that we have. The way we live, it contradicts the Spirit. That's the issue. Now, this is where baptism comes into play. This is where now baptism becomes real. Right? Remember in our reading, Paul listed these seven things that are one, right? One body, one Lord, one baptism. Then he mentions, yes, one baptism. It's almost out of nowhere that Paul brings up baptism. It's the only thing, in fact, in that list that's physical. Right? Everything else is metaphorical and spiritual. And as I said earlier, right, baptism is the visible, tangible way of showing unity. 
That's a sacrament. That's a big word, but it just means it makes visible what is invisible. Let me put it this way. Now let's go back to that broken family again. Imagine the separated members on their own of the family living by themselves. They're thinking to themselves, oh well, our family really, it's theoretically united anyways. Right? The invisible unity of the family is all that matters in the end. We're bound by the power of our parents' marriage vows. That's still legal. That's powerful. Our family name, we have the same family name. We're genetically together. That's all that really matters in the end. We're still family. That's just silly. <laughs> They're not even talking to each other. They're still estranged. They're not reconciled. They haven't forgiven one another. What good is this invisible unity that we have when they're not physically together at all? Now imagine individual Christians, local churches, all the denominations around the world at around time saying to themselves, what a church is theologically one and united anyways, right? Our invisible unity in the spirit is all that matters. We're bound by the power of God's word to us, by the blood of Jesus, by the one baptism of our one faith. God will be the only one who could bring us all together finally in the end. So what gives? (laughs) That's also so silly. That's just a fancy theological excuse to not work towards the unity that we are called to. What good is invisible unity unity when we're not actually together, talking face-to-face, embracing one another, we're serving together, forgiving one another, having communion together? I really believe that uh, Jesus commanded his followers to baptize just for this one reason, that is to visually show the unity that we have in the Spirit. Because all Christians must therefore go through the same physical event. All Christians must then go through the same physical event that visibly unites us, not only to Jesus, but to each other. That's what's happening in baptism. If you're getting baptized or you're having your kid baptized, you're making your commitment visible, verbal, physical to everyone. By your, your declaration to this church, your family now. You are family now. And my family and I and my kids will be showing up here in our get-togethers. We're going to sit around the table. We will have communion together. We'll get to know each other. You'll get to know me. We'll get to know you. We will love you. And we will be loved by you. We will show up. Baptism is no less showing up to your family. Baptism is no less showing up to your family. It visibly shows your commitment that you're actually united in this body, in the church, in that same spirit of unity. All right, that sounds all good, theoretically, but how does that actually play out in real life? How do we live out baptism? That actually shows unity. Paul has an answer. He says this. Christians walk in this way with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
Nothing profoundly innovative there, right? It's pretty straightforward. But all of us know how incredibly difficult it is to be humble, gentle, patient, forbearing, and loving those who are especially difficult, disagreeable, and divisive. And those who are often difficult and divisive or disagreeable in our lives are usually sometimes even members of our own family, our own relatives, right? As we sometimes say, it's different when it comes to family, right? Think about this. This is what we do often and always, right? When we meet people for the first time or we're just bumping into this person every once in a while, we're usually and always so polite with them, right? We will be so courteous, We'll be understanding. We'll think the best of their intentions. And we'll sometimes go above and beyond with these people because we generally want them to keep liking us and us to keep liking them. That's what we will do with acquaintances and strangers. But when it comes to family, right, we're, we're stuck with family for life. And with family, it can go either way, right? Depending on your upbringing and relationship, you become so relaxed with family. Or you could be so afraid and rigid with family. You could be your true selves around family. Or you could just be so fake with each other. You don't have to put up this Christian face with your family. But maybe you always have to behave or else. Again, depends on your upbringing. But, but, but when we're so relaxed with family, yes, we become so casual with them. You could be so direct and frank with family, you're just becoming rude to them. Yes, you could be your true selves with them, but your true self can actually be so nasty and ugly. You drop your guard with family, but then you become careless with them, with your relationships with them. Right? We can be our best selves and our worst selves with family. So this is what I'm saying. This is, it can be so hard to be humble and gentle and patient forbearing and loving when it comes to family. We take those relationships for granted. We take them for granted. And especially if they are difficult, they're disagreeable and divisive. The uh, 2021 Disney film, it's titled Encanto, that's the story of this Colombian family uh, whose members have all of these unique magical gifts, except for one of the granddaughters named Mirabelle. Right, who is the main character of the story. Uh, the family lives in this magical house, the source of everyone's magic. It's under the leadership of the grand matriarch, the grandmother. Now, Mirabelle, who does not have, again, a gift of herself, often feels left out. But you know what? She's just as loved and embraced by any member of the family. Yeah, so far, so good. But as the story unfolds, the magic of the house that they live in, it mysteriously begins to wane. And the family members, they start losing the strength and control of their own gifts. Now, Mirabelle takes it upon herself to investigate. I want to solve this mystery. Now, during that time, some family members were beginning to blame the uncle who disappeared some time ago. He was banished by the grandmother for these ominous visions he kept seeing of the house being destroyed. And he kept sharing that. He had to share it. But that was bad news. No bad news in the family. So you're cast out. You're a troublemaker. As Mirabelle tried different solutions, the situation only grew worse, and the house was starting to fall apart. Then tensions reached their climax 
when the grandmother herself ends up blaming Mirabel, her granddaughter, expressing her absolute disappointment of her, saying that she had cursed this house because you're the one without the gifts. At that, the house implodes, all is destroyed, everyone loses their gifts. Mirabel runs away, devastated. The grandmother ends up feeling remorseful for how harsh she had been all of Mirabel's life, despising her inwardly. And she goes out to look for Mirabel. Finding her, the grandmother humbles herself. She apologizes to her granddaughter. She ends up sharing with her granddaughter more of her own hang-ups and fears that stemmed out of her own traumatic past. And out of the rubble of the house, the uncle emerges and is also welcomed back by his mother who had banished him. There was this reunion that takes place and all the members of the family, they begin to rebuild from the damage. It took some time to rebuild, but the house is back again. And you know what? The magic returned to this new house. But there's a difference. There's a difference because everyone is together. No one is missing. No one is blaming one another anymore. Estranged members, they're reunited. They're reconciled. And everyone's gifts were restored to them in full. That's one picture of how and what the church should be. Even as our situations grow worse, the institution of the church in the West, it crumbles all away. All there is left is dust. The kingdom of God, in fact, endures forever. And the Spirit of God will still hover over your heads, over your bodies, over this community. And He is still whispering into our ears, be humble, be gentle, be patient, forbear each other, love one another. And you know what? It's precisely in the middle of all our fights of our bitterness, of our unforgiveness, of our divisions, that when we finally stop fighting each other, when we start to forgive, when we ask to be forgiven, when we start to move towards and not away from each other, is the unity of the Spirit even more clearly seen and witnessed in this space, but also by the world that is looking at the church once we remember our baptism again and return to our baptism, that's when the church can indeed rebuild from the rubble that we've caused. We can regain the fullness and diversity of our gifts. Each of you have a spiritual gift or more. The Holy Spirit has endowed you with these gifts. Show it, serve it, that we may give them free and full expression for the world to see and enjoy. But you know what? When we do that, it reveals finally Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the source of our gifts, the source of our unity, whom the Father has sent to the world. That's what it means to live out baptism, to visibly show to the world the invisible unity of the Spirit. That's what it means. Let me close with the last prayer that Jesus prayed over us before he himself was betrayed and arrested at night. <coughs> Excuse 
excuse me, Jesus prayed this. Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, and that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.